0: If you buy any of this, there still remains a really important sort of why are we talking about rabbits style question. We need to address it. If teens rebel in our society and not in others, at least not to the same extent, what are they rebelling against? Hello. And welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? This podcast is aimed at folks who, like Neo in the Matrix, have a deep sense of dislocation. On this pod, we talk about heavy things, lightly, theology, philosophy, immersive experiences overseas. We're all going to use them to figure out how we got here to this place. So join me, John Hears, and our team of First Things Foundation field workers. As all of us consider aloud... Why are we talking about rabbits? Today, this is episode 10. This is Light People and the Myth of Teenage Rebellion. Peace to everybody. It's August. It's hot. And well, it's good. It's good to be outside. It's good to be back here, too, on the pod Sharing our first things, old world experiences with all of us here in the light world. One thing I've been getting into a little bit in terms of feedback, by the way, is the idea out there that some of you think this pod is an attempt to change new world attitudes into old world attitudes. Like, get everyone to see the efficacy of leeches in medical treatments. Or maybe convince you that four wives is better than one But that's not what we're really trying to do. I hope not. I mean, because I don't want to use either of those things in my life. Four wives would not be a good thing. And many leeches on my body seems bad. I often sound enamored with the old world and the point of view from the past and our field workers overseas often fall in love with a type of romantic old world concept because they're living in it in many ways. But the notion of change, of getting people back to something, I just don't even think that's how history works. It's definitely not how I think it works. And it isn't how this pod is meant to work. Culture is life in many ways. It's, it's what we imbibe. And what we imbibe from people around us, all of those people constantly making connections and weaving together the reality, well, that's culture. And that reality can't be undone or escaped from or rejiggered using a rational argument on a podcast. It just, I just, it, it doesn't work like that. Even if this was a million podcasts, Cultures are organic, and in the end, they have momentum, and that momentum is what all of us imbibe, regardless of our preferences. The only way out of culture, in in my humble opinion, is to adopt a different one, to put a new one on, and that can only happen through your activity in the culture. So ultimately, if this pot is any good in anything, we want it to be good at revealing And I think what we're trying to do is reveal what already exists in your soul, in eternity, in reality. This pod isn't about fixing things and going back. It's more about recovering things. It's about balance. And so to some folks who are making really great comments out there, keep making them. Thank you. And that's that for right now, because it's episode 10. Today... I want to use a light person study. If you're new to the pod, light people are people of the Enlightenment. That's probably you. I want to use a light person study to demonstrate an old world axiom. And what is that axiom? Today, we're going to show how teenage rebellion is a myth a fundamentally new world creation rooted in wishful thinking about ourselves and about our dearest possessions, which, of course, are our children. Is it a myth? I think so. But let's take a look. First, a story. This story comes from our work overseas, in particular my work with a West African teenager named Lassina. Lassina was a smart young man. By smart, I mean he was good at school. And well, to be fair, he was about the only teenager I knew that was in school. Most kids finished their studies by age 13 in the village where I worked in Western Mali. lacino was different. He liked to study. He continued his studies in the regional capital, and he did so by riding his bike more than two hours each morning. When he'd do that, He'd have to ride home, and by the time he got back to his village in the afternoon, he'd go right to work with his dad, a man named Dauda. Their work was primarily, you know, together, their work was as an equine family. They were the horse keepers, the keeper and trainer of the horses that the village cooperatively owned. Lasina and his dad would shoe horses and get them out in the fields as necessary, often to pull a blade and turn the soil ahead of the planting season. In short, Lesina was a student who was also the resident horse whisperer, and he'd always been a horse whisperer, working with his dad since since, since he could pick up a saddle. One day, I asked Lesina if he'd be heading to Bamako, the country capital, the nation's capital, to continue his studies, right? And if he'd did do that, I told him and reminded him, and you would be the only student from this village ever to go to college. This was back in the 90s. Things may have changed, but at that point, he would have been the man. I'll never forget his reaction to my question. He said, What was he saying? Well, he was saying, no. No, I'm not going. He was saying, Joe McGon, why would I go to study? I'm a kamada. We work with horses. When I pressed him that, well, he could be a kamada, like that's his last name, and be a doctor. Or heck, he could go to France and get a job and all that. He said, but what would my father do without me? And when he said it, his face was so... Flat or something and simple it was just it was like ridiculously kind and meek it was just like so beautifully simple that I felt terrible I I felt bad like actually bad like I killed a butterfly or something and I I relented because who wants to feel like that and I think Lucina is probably shoeing horses even as I tell this story all these years later Probably teaching his son to shoe horses. Probably, I think. And this isn't weird in our business, in first things. In the Georgian Republic, I could tell you a thousand stories of young men. I'm talking like 12 years old. Helping us with all types of relief efforts during the Abkhazian Civil War. Just lifting large sacks of flour and showing up on time. And bringing their big brothers or their fathers. And just standing around waiting to be directed. Early in the morning. I mean, big young 12-year-old hands working and drinking coffee with us and sharing a glass of wine and toasting. This is nuts, man. And the same in Guatemala. I mean, don't even get me started in Guatemala. I, we saw tweens, okay, like young boys and girls, 12, 13, they'd stand for two hours at a time praying. In these old-fashioned Orthodox liturgies, just smiling along, standing. Like, it was kind of crazy, because I wanted to just, I, I i needed a bathroom break, man. These kids, just standing there. I saw it with my own eyes, man. It was, it was nuts. It was, it was like a dream watching them. They made me feel like a loser. And the same in Ethiopia. And the same all across the world. All across the old world, that is. In the new world, the thing in this pod we call the light people world, the world since the Enlightenment, it's different. Here we have teen rebellion. Here we are told kids' brains aren't fully developed. And I mean, I have told people this as an educator. People I work with in education, many of them, I told them this. And they tell one another this. And parents and kids tell each other this, and then we tell them this, and then they tell us this. And your brain is different. You have a different brain that still has a lot of growing to do. Be at peace, we tell the kids and their parents. You're supposed to feel weird. You're supposed to feel out of sorts. And parents, you're just not able to fix this brain growth problem. Adolescence, that period, how is it defined? Adolescence, if you look online, the World Health Organization defines adolescence as any person between the ages of 10 and 19. Adolescence, it's a thing in the new world. This period between puberty and 19, I don't know what that is, but is it actually a thing, though? Like, does adolescence exist? as a category of merit, is teenage rebellion connected somehow to the developing brain of young men and women? Is that a thing? Let's put it really simply. Does your kid inevitably despise your little dad jokes because their disdain is inevitable, biological? Is their disdain biological? Like, I'm guessing you probably believe your son is going to grow pubic hair. That's coming. If that happens, or hair under their arms, you probably are like, that's happening. Is it the same with his disdain for your trousers? Or the way you wear really ugly sneakers with dumb shorts? Hmm. This is my favorite one. Like, Papa, you have tight jeans on and you're not young. That happens. Is that thing, that disdain, inevitable? Some people think so. Listen to this from Dr. Michael Bradley and his award-winning book, Yes, Your Teen is Crazy. And I quote, The most advanced parts of the brain are not completed until at least age 25. The prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for moral judgment, emotional restraint, rational decision-making, impulse control, and critical thinking, does the bulk of its maturation from ages 20, sorry, 12 to 20, unquote. 12 to 20, there's the magical adolescence. Right? The majority of emotional and moral decision-making between 12 and 20. He then adds this, So, quote, Teens are literally cut off from the part of their brain that helps make good decisions. And he writes, Exclamation point. Teens are cut off from the part of their brain that helps them make good decisions. Lots of light people with big degrees agree with Dr. Bradley. Listen to David Elkind, a rather famous professor and a doctor of child development at Tufts University in the Northeast. His book sold over 200,000 copies, quote, as your child ages into their adolescence, it may seem that they argue for the sake of arguing, but really, they're practicing their new abilities, unquote. Hmm. They argue because they're exercising their new brain skills. It's part of their growth education and educators mostly believe this stuff parents do too but something tells me that uh, many light people have this wrong something about how it doesn't happen to everybody actually say like puberty happens to everybody in all cultures something tells me there's something amiss here's a question to suss this out If you want to be mm, a race car driver, where would you spend most of your time at any age? At the track with other drivers? Maybe, maybe you just hop in a car with one of these other older drivers and well, maybe you would actually sit there and watch them drive, right? Yeah. Apprenticeship. You know, it's a thing. It's a thing in human history. In fact, it's a big thing in old world history. But if we take a look at teen people, teen light people, adults we call adolescents, some of their time, well, most of their time, how do they spend that time in pursuit of adulthood? Let me put it really Simply, where do light people send their kids to learn the art of being an adult? Where do light people send their kids to learn the art of adulting? To schools, to colossal kid coliseums, where they are surrounded by other kids, other teens, lots of other teens. There they are inundated with the very people who can teach them zero things about adulthood. And we send them there day after day, week after week, surrounding them with all types of variations on confusion, all manner of young men and women who together are all getting the new superpowers of adulthood, think sex, the ability to drive, disposable income, and all of them together and confused on how to use these new superpowers. We jam them all together, take out the elders. I mean, almost out, because it's a ratio of like 25 to 1, teen to elder. And then we say, grow up. And what's the result? Teenage rebellion. I'm not saying this like some, I don't know, cynical politician who wants to return to the 1950s. Ugh. Ugh. I couldn't even have married my wife in the 1950s. Give me a break. I don't want to go there. Who wants to go there? I don't want to go there. But teenage rebellion's a thing, man. But it's not a thing. The rebellion of the teen in that setting manifests itself as a type of middle finger to adult values. But is it really? Is it really about rejecting adults? Or is it more about rejecting and despising the fact that we adults ejected our children. Hmm. I mean, we ejected them. We sent them out of our world to be with other teens, none of whom they call family. I say that like a, it's, like it's irrit- I, this happened to me and I did it to my own. But you see, in the old world, cultures of today, places today that live under this old world lig. And in the old world pre-enlightenment cultures before 1650, even in Europe, teenagers spent nearly all of their time alongside their parents. And this is important, their parents' closest friends. And that's exactly what we experience overseas. We see it in our FTF work with these very traditional societies. We see teens alongside their elders all day long like all day long. They're doing these little apprenticeships of maturity as participants in dad's cool stuff. That's what they're doing. As co-creators of mom's cool world. And where we see that, I'm just telling you, we don't see teenage rebellion at all. And we're not alone. Here's the cool part or weird part. Light people have studied this scientists from today light people using reason using all the tools of the enlightenment have studied this and they've confirmed what so many of us see overseas check this out in the 1990s alice schlegel of the university of arizona uh, an anthropologist and a psychologist named herbert berry of the university of pittsburgh did a multi-year study They studied 186 pre-industrial societies. What did they find? First, they found that it was really, really hard to study adolescence in these cultures because, check this out, because 60% of them had no word for adolescence. Let me repeat that. More than half of traditional societies studying in this multi-year study didn't even think there was such a thing as adolescence. There was no such thing as a teenager. Are you getting this? Puberty went directly into adulthood for these cultures. Just like that. And why? Well, once a kid turned 13 or so, a kid was expected to do adult stuff. Right? That's the whole circumcision concept of becoming an adult. And you see this, especially in West Africa. This happens all the time. It's all around the world. Right? When a kid turned 13, he was expected to adult do adult stuff. He was asked to do it, expected to do it, and do it well. Think of an Iowa kid, a farm kid who learns to drive a giant tractor at 13. And you're like, whoa, dude. All of his buddies from the from the city, all of his cousins are like, dude, you drive a tractor, you're only like 12. It's like that. You see, teens in these old world cultures. This is what the study found. It found that they spent almost all of their time with adults. And when they did, they showed almost no signs of psychopathology, no signs of antisocial behavior. In fact, in young males, aggressive antisocial behavior in the form of crime was completely absent. And where they did find it, in the majority of cultures, that antisocial criminal behavior was extremely mild. And there are other light people studies that demonstrate even more succinctly what I'm saying. Teenage rebellion isn't a brain thing when you look at these studies. In the 1980s, anthropologists Beatrice Whiting and John Whiting of Harvard University studied links between Western pop culture and the rise of teenage rebellion. Their study suggests that teen trouble begins to appear in other cultures soon after the introduction of certain Western influences. What are the key Western influences? Western-style schooling, number one. Western-style television, Western-style movies is what they found. In a sad turn of events, they found that delinquency and crime was of no consequence among the Inuit people of Victoria Island in Canada. That was one of their studies. Before 1980, there was literally no crime. Delinquency was not a conversation. What happened in 1980? Well... Cable TV happened. And by 1988, the Inuit governing body there decided to build their very first police station. Today, they not only have a police station, but a youth detention center and lots of youth anti delinquency programs to boot. The Whiting studies show a direct relationship between Western culture, Western style schooling, and the rise of teenage rebellion. Uh, you can look it up, it's in the pod notes. Now, that doesn't make it true. I mean, if anything on this show, so what? You just have to decide, right? But I'm telling you, it's experiential when you go overseas and spend a long time period, say, in a mud hut in West Africa. You see it. Kids do not trash talk their parents. Look, there's a lot more to read about this, if you like that sort of thing. Check out Hugh Cunningham at the University of Kent in England and a guy named Mark Kluet. Of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They wrote, Ancient Youth, The Ambiguity of Youth, and the Absence of Adolescence in Greco-Roman Society. In that book, they lay it out that this thing we call adolescence, it wasn't tumultuous and it wasn't even a thing. What they found is that adolescence is a concept that's about a 100 years old. So... If you buy any of this, there still remains a really important sort of why are we talking about rabbits style question. We need to address it. If teens rebel in our society and not in others, at least not to the same extent, what are they rebelling against? I mean, rebellion implies angst and irritation, rejection, anger. Few of us think of teenage rebellion as the happy time. Why the middle finger? Why not teenage adherence? Oh my gosh, my kid keeps doing exactly what I tell him. Oh my gosh, I woke up this morning and the coffee was made because you know I love coffee and my kid really respects me so he got up and made coffee. This teenage adherence thing, it's crazy. It's really nutty. Why not teenage obedience? Why is it rebellion? One idea, and I like this idea. I don't like it because I want it to happen, but I mean, it's freaky, this idea. It comes from the old world. It says that teens aren't being called to a higher purpose, and that's why they rebel. It's the notion that teens aren't being asked of really difficult things things they aren't being asked to serve something deeply important to them notice i didn't say something that they really like no 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 the old world idea is that they aren't being asked to serve something deeply important not something that they oh i really like that no one thought is that rebellion results when teenagers aren't asked to serve something very, 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 very essential. One of my favorite people in Georgia, a guy named Go-Go, he told me once, John, a child's purpose is to serve their parents who give them everything. What? A child's purpose is to serve their parents. The parents have given them everything. For Gogo, the deepest and most fulfilling service for a kid is to be in service to his maker, to his or her makers. Whoa. You hear the God thing in there? The parents made the kid. The parents are the God icon. And Gogo is saying this is important. You serve your God. And the parents are a stand-in, right? For him, service means being near, near to that part of life that is essential, being alongside that thing to which you have always looked up to. And well, in the new world of today, our teens are not alongside us. A recent New York Times article reports, and you can find this in the pod notes, a New York Times article reports that today's teens spend more than 60 hours a week with their peers. 60. That same report says that teens in the old world traditional societies, the kind we're talking about, spend less than five hours with their peers. Five. Like on one hand, five. Can you see your kids spending less than five hours with their friends in a week? How is that even possible? They have to stay in a closet or something. In some ways, my buddy Gogo and many, many others are arguing that teens rebel because they are pissed that we, like people, parents have in fact abandoned them. And what's worse, we abandoned them just when they are ready to become what they've always wanted to become. Us. I'm almost there. I'm ready to be like my dad. And then he won't let me. Whoa, that's quite a thought. And if it's true, well, it goes pretty far in describing the word rebellion. They're pissed. Hell yeah, pissed. Remember when I used to be your son? Remember when I used to tag along and everything I did was for you? I don't know, man. I don't know if it's true, but that's Go-Go's theory. And it's not. Mm, I don't think it's unlike a lot of theories I would hear in any of the countries where we work or any of the old world histories that I read about. It's terrifying, though. They're not really rebelling. They're more like fighting back. Whoa. All right, to end this, though, I'd like to quote the most modern of sources, Wikipedia. In Wikipedia, Teenage Rebellion is described like this. Well, this is the actual definition. Quote, the part of the human development in young adults in order for them to develop an identity independent from their parents or family and a capacity for independent decision making, unquote hmm, adolescence, teen life is the part of human development in young adults where they learn to be independent. The definition of teenage teenage rebellion in this very democratically crowdsourced modern dictionary, I mean, can it be more modern, says that teen rebellion is human, as in human, like all of us do it. The definition says something like all of us experience it. And then it says teen rebellion is a natural way to develop identity. Rebellion leads to identity. Man, there's a lot in that. The Old World League says this new world definition is bunk. And guess what? I agree. It's bunk. Because it isn't universal. It's not brain-based it's not human except in that we do it to ourselves yeah we we do this thing in our kids and that leads them to rebel and human beings mess up it's human in that sense but i don't think it's something that like like pubic hair i i don't and maybe you can argue that this whole rebellion thing's good, like independence is good. You know, we did rebel against England in terms of the American light people experience. I just think it's report important to remember the next time you see your teenager acting like a raging idiot, it may not be his brain. It may just be his new world culture. And all the adults he aspires to be one day have put him in place for rebellion. I just want to put that out there. One last thing before I go, let me update you on Lassina. That's the kid who raised horses, the kid who wouldn't go off to college. Remember the beginning of the pod? Remarkably, since starting to conceive this pod earlier, I was able to reach Lucina way over in Mali on Instagram. <laughs> At least I think it's him. I think. Guess what? He is still shoeing horses 25 years later, but now with electricity in the village, apparently. I think he's 40-ish. He doesn't know how old he is. A lot of times in the, in the old world, folks don't know exactly how old they are. But guess what else? His son, he had one, moved to Bamako, the capital, and is now finishing his studies. And likely heading to France, or so the son hopes. I repeat, the kid who wouldn't rebel has, it seems, raised himself a rebel, a light person. My thoughts on this are utterly confused. Utterly. Let's come back sometime and talk about it because it's crazy. Is this a good thing? It's so fascinating. P- put a comment out there because I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it just is. Maybe he's becoming a light person. Fascinating. So, to Lasina and his son Shenis Gagimargos. Shenis marjos That's. To you, the victory. It's set off at a KP table in Georgia, the Georgian Republic. We just threw one of those this week, by the way. One out in Dallas and one in Minneapolis because, well, we're sending two new field workers into the fray. Somehow through COVID, we're doing it. COVID be semi-sort of damned-ish, kind of. Man, is it hard to plan. But we're doing it. Good people came on. We brought them on. Love them. Welcome Great families, great masked fun. Wattar, that's this podcast is produced by Andrew Schwark and Daniel Paternos and our pod is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation, a nonprofit that lives and works in some of the world's most impoverished places, immersing there in order to create momentum for local change makers, folks we call impresarios. We work hard on their vision for a better life. Share this pod. Share this Wattar. Hit us up with a solid review on iTunes and everywhere you get your podcasts. Your love for us allows us to love and serve others. Nakfamdis, hasta luego, kambufo, au revoir, all of that. Peace out from Watar.